Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Have you heard it on the news About this fascist growth thing Evil men with racist views Spreading all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say... Yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Good afternoon, gentle listeners. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran. I'm Andy Fleming. And I'm Cam Smith. This is a new weekly program on 3CR, taking a look at fascism and white supremacy in Australia and around the world. We're joined today by Jeff Sparrow, the author of Fascists Among Us, Online Hate and the Christchurch Massacre, which examines the perpetrator of that attack, referred to as Person X, as well as the state of fascism today and the threat that it might pose. Jeff, why did you write this book? When the uh, massacre took place, which, I mean, it's getting, well, it's getting close to a year ago now, I was, well, I was struck, firstly, by the fact that the perpetrator was an Australian, secondly, by uh, how similar the arguments that he was making were to arguments I had heard from uh, various people in the far right in Australia. And at the same time, I was somewhat taken aback by the response of the media to his his statements in the manifesto that he produced, he says explicitly, I am a fascist. He goes on to say something like, you know, the journalists will will love that for once the person they call a fascist is actually a fascist. And yet in the discussion that followed, there was a real reluctance by a lot of people in the media to actually discuss what fascism was and to even use the F word in the context of the perpetrator. We had a lot of people who would simply refer to him as... Uh, an extremist or a radical or an anti-immigration campaigner, whereas um, he had made it very clear that uh, he viewed himself as a fascist and viewed himself very clearly within a you know a political and historical tradition that he knew a great deal about. So I thought it was important to kind of draw out that there is such a thing as fascism. It actually matters, and if we are to fight against this phenomenon, we need to understand something about it. One of the things that struck me um, in the immediate response to the massacre was on the chans, a number of individuals wrote in immediate response to news of the massacre being reported that, of course, he's an Aussie. And I wonder, you've said that the Australian media reportage tended to downplay the killer's self-proclaimed fascism. On the other hand, you have those on the chans and elsewhere saying, making an immediate connection, I guess, both to his fascism, to his violence, but also the fact that he's Australian. What can be said about the Australian media landscape in particular, uh, do you think, that explains the response to this event, both by, I guess, journalists, but also those on the far right? Yeah, well, that's a really interesting point. Now, of course, we know that the perpetrator was 
in was a supporter of various fascist groups in Australia, specifically the United Patriots Front and the, Front and the True Blue crew, that he was in contact with various luminaries here in Australia. But, but of course, uh, um, we also know that many of the people that he was in contact with had been getting extraordinarily favourable treatment in the Australian media, at least for a, for a period of time. Uh, Cottrell, of course, Blair Cottrell from the United Patriots Front was the most notable example, you know, being on Sky News, but also on Triple J at um, one stage. And I think that does go back to the point that I was trying to make before, that the media's unwillingness to like, to engage with the idea of fascism as a serious set of ideas and a political tradition meant that many people in the media really did not know how to report on phenomenon like the you know United Patriots Front when that seemed to be a thing for 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 a while and you know I mean there's a <laughs> there's a there's a uh, Marx quote that I like in this context he, he says at one point ignorance never gets anyone anywhere and you know again I think if we are to fight these people or those of us who work in the media want to know how we should respond to them the first step is to try and educate ourselves as to who these people are and what they believe. Do you think that outside of an apparent absence of political literacy, do you think there's other reasons why segments of the media might downplay his uh, status as a fascist? Because, as you've also said, we have had figures like Blair Cottrell and others appear on Sky News and on ABC in 2018, I think it was. We had Stefan Molyneux and Lauren Southern tour Australia propounding on The Great Replacement, which was at the core of... Uh, person X's manifesto. What do you understand to be the relationship between the apparently extreme actions of someone like Person X and um, the ways in which those kinds of ideas or versions of those those ideas have actually been taken up and presented to the Australian public by otherwise, uh, you know, mainstream media? Yeah, again, I think that's another really interesting point. I mean, I think if we think back to that particular period, we can see two phenomena happening at the same time, two apparently um, contradictory phenomena. On the one hand, there's a mainstream of right-wing conspiracy theories like The Great Replacement that, you know, like you say, it's it's getting eerie on Sky, you know, Bolt's talking to these people, they're on, you know, today shows and all, all the rest of it. At the same time, there was also the establishment of a distinctive fascist tendency with a more or less overt commitment to that core fascist idea um, of redemptive violence. And those two things, I think, were happening uh, kind of in some relationship to each other, that the people like the Christchurch perpetrator simultaneously knew that they benefited from the mainstreaming of these crazy, you know, racial populist ideas, but at the same time were very clear that they themselves represented something uh, distinctly different from racial populists in that they represented fascism and a core element of that fascism was and is a willingness to use the kind of um, extreme violence that manifested in, um, in, in, in Christchurch. So I think, you know, that the those two phenomena uh, worked together, and I think people like the crisis were very aware of it. Something that uh, 
a lot of uh, journalists struggled with while they were trying to pass the manifesto is what to take at face value and what was just shitposting. The, uh, how did you approach the manifesto in terms of what you took as uh, a sincere, uh, I guess, expression and what you took as being insincere? Yeah, I, I think the shitposting elements of the manifesto I seem to me to be a way of signalling to a particular audience that this is a document for them. I mean, the argument that I make in the book is that the, the Christchurch massacre comes out of, in some respects, the defeat of, of street fascism, that, um, that the attempt of these people to build a movement in Australia and in the United States had come to nothing and had been a strategic argument as to which way forward. And um, the Christchurch perpetrator had determined that the way forward was um, violent um, terrorism, but violent terrorism that was primarily aimed to inspire not the population as a whole, nor even the sort of, you know, the, 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 the populist Right, but to think that was directly aimed at the kind of population, the kind of people who who populated, you know, HN or the various other um, uh, places where the, um, the 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 far right congregated online. So everything that um, he did in respect of the massacre was very carefully planned out to kind of wink to those people and to say. This I'm doing this for you to create a kind of object of fascination that would be endlessly discussed on the chance that the, the the grotesque video that he filmed would circulate endlessly, and the net result would be that um, of that fascination would be other people would be introduced to 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 follow it. And as we know, that 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 plan has actually worked out quite well. They have now been, you know, um, a, a significant number of imitative terrorist attacks. We know that uh, Person X had connections to the far right in Australia, that he spoke approvingly of Cottrell as his uh, emperor or emperor-like figure. In the aftermath, one other former member of the UPF, Tom Sewell, was contacted and asked about what he knew about Person X and what their associations were. And one of the things that he stated, I think, in the report was that uh, well, it was kind of a, a plea on the one hand, saying, look, we just want to go away and do our thing. And on the other hand, we don't want to be subject to um, you know, police attention or political opposition or repression of any sort. And if we are, then um, that's only going to further antagonise us. And it seemed to be implied that there may be that... Um, you know, directly addressing these groups or confronting these groups is going to push them into a corner, and if they're pushed into a corner, they're more likely to uh, strike out, which seems to be an argument for adopting a less confrontational approach, perhaps. In terms of, like, I guess, developing strategies to counter both these groups but also these ideas, what do you think are the productive conversations that can be had by people who oppose fascism in terms of strategy and tactics. Are there any forms of action that you think are more productive, more useful? Um, that's the first part of the question. The second is we have uh, state re responses, obviously, and how do you go about distinguishing between what's useful about 
uh, the response by the state and what might be more popular or public responses to these kinds of phenomenon? Pretty much a PhD thesis. <laughs> You've got yeah, two minutes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was an extraordinary interview, that one, where we essentially told the journalists, you know, people don't leave us alone, you know, um, we're going to do the thing that we do, more or less, you know, hinting that there would be um, a, a, a violent response. But, see, I, I mean, I took that conversation as further evidence of, of the argument that I was making more generally that in the wake of the um, the wake of unite the right in the United States and the wake of the sort of the, the failure of the UPF to maintain its its marches here in Australia or to build its its political wing fortitude which you know um, collapsed ignominiously there was a fragmenting and a sort of strategic kind of um, cul-de-sac reached by the fascist activists and they all tried to respond to that in different ways and the Christchurch massacre represented one kind of response to that. There were some people who said look we just need to go back online and get back to shit posting and memes. There are some people who said no no we need to keep on you know um, trying to have street protests. There are other people who sort of argued for um, well I guess the Tom Sewell approach is essentially we should set up um, you know whites only safe spaces or, or whatever but these are all attempts, all attempts to come to terms with the fact that the far right had been defeated on the street. And I think we have to say that was a good thing. I mean, there, there was a moment there in both the United States and in Australia where it seemed there was a possibility that these people might break through. There were a number of demonstrations where they mobilised significantly more people than most of us on the left thought they were going to do. Um, you know, they were releasing... Um, quite sophisticated propaganda that was um, circulating quite widely. They were making inroads into the mainstream media. It looked like something was going to happen, and they were defeated. Now, how were they defeated? Well, I mean, if you look at their discussions in the United States, it's clear that the, the demonstrations against them had a massive impact. You know, it got to the point where they simply could not go out to the street anymore. Um, you know, they couldn't have their, their, their campus tours everywhere they did. They would be confronted and they just didn't know um, what, to do, what to do. So I think that remains, you know, that's always been part of the less traditional arsenal in response to, to fascism, to meet them on the street. And I think that, that has been um, confirmed. In terms of the state repression, I mean, that is an interesting question because it's clear that they weren't really prepared for the amount of state repression that, 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 that came down their way after Unite the Right in the United States and perhaps to a lesser extent in Australia. But, I, I mean, I guess my response to that to, would be to say this is something which is out of our control. You know, we can't really determine what the state does and the degree to which the state... Uh, collaborates with these people and the, the degree to which um, it cracks down on them. And in terms of the Christchurch perpetrator, I mean, I, I do mention in passing in, in the book, given this was someone who was threatening people on um, social media, had been regularly posting kind of more or less overt, overtly kind of threatening messages and stuff, had he been you know, from a Middle Eastern background, as the cops say, I doubt very much that... Um, he would have ever got into a position where he could have carried out the atrocities he did because of the, the state essential would have been far more so. The other question, though, that I think one that I have been grappling with and have not reached a particularly satisfactory conclusion is that 
if you see as I do the Christ the Christchurch perpetrators strategy as a response to the defeat they um, they suffered on the street, then the question remains: What is it that the left should be doing about fascists online? Because the perpetrator of that atrocity very clearly recognised that the online spaces were places where fascists could cohere, they could recruit, and, you know, they could induce people to take action. Now, it might not be very many people in places like HN who are prepared to go onto the streets with a gun, but it doesn't take very many in order to commit absolute carnage, and they are very, very difficult to stop. So... How do we respond to that? I mean, in the book, I tried to suggest that I think there might be room for more experimentation about what online anti-fascism might look like, but I think it's a very fraught and difficult area. As you guys would know, I mean, in terms of the UPF in Australia, one of the things that really hamstrung them was them losing their Facebook page because that had been one of their major mobilising tools. Now, I think that's a good thing that they can't mobilise on Facebook, but that's not a decision that we can make or something that we can control in any way, shape or form. And of course, Facebook is a multinational corporation. Its decision-making processes are entirely opaque and it's just as likely to crack down on, you know, on pages belonging to progressive or oppressed people. So how do we negotiate that? I don't really know the answer to that. I think it's it's something that, that the left and anti-fascist has to keep thinking about because it's a new kind of question, I guess. It's, it's not something that previous generations of anti-fascists had to deal with, and it's quite clearly something of tremendous significance in dealing with the far right today. You are listening to Yeah Nah Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, and streaming on 3cr.org.au. We're currently talking to Jeff Sparrow about his book, Fascists Among Us. When you're looking at... Um online hate. As you've noted, the closure of the UPF fa- page on Facebook more or less resulted in the, t- well, the end of that organisation. But there have emerged other platforms like Gab and, uh, well, VK is another uh, site, Telegram. There's a constant Telegram. evolution of um, technologies. And, and I guess the other dimension of that is that sometimes allowing for monitoring their presence online is actually a useful activity because you can glean information from that. And if they're not online in a way that you can um, examine, it makes it that much more difficult to actually analyse and monitor and document their activities. In terms of your own online explorations, were there, when you explored this world, were there things that you discovered that um, you found surprising or shocking were there things about fascist political expressions online that you think are, you know, can be distinguished from those that are, you, know, you might find in a pamphlet? What, what do you think that uh, the online culture offers uh, fascists that more traditional forms of organisation and propaganda doesn't or hasn't been able to? Well, in terms of my response to it, I guess my instinctive reaction is the same as anyone else who starts to spend any time around these sites is kind of incredulity about how easy it is to find people who are openly celebrating fascist murders. You know, in the wake of any one of those massacres, there will immediately be any number of people who you can find very, very quickly who are saying, this was great, there should be more of them, let's talk about, you know, how we can make sure that the, the, the next massacre kills more people or whatever. So, you know, 
that is what it is. It's a bit hard to deal with the first time that you encounter it. In terms of the more general question about the utility of the online space to the fascist right, I think that is a really interesting question, and I think in some ways the online space is much more conducive to fascist organising than it is to left-wing organising. I say that because online forums are generally participatory, but not democratic. That is, they usually they usually have an owner or a moderator, unelected, and, and runs the and um, runs the forum and controls what happens there. Now that's a paradigm that the left, which generally has a commitment to some kind of de- uh, democracy, finds very difficult to deal with. If you're a hierarchical organisation like a fascist outfit, it's not a problem at all. In fact, it's a good thing. One of the problems the fascist right has always had is staying together because, you know, everybody wants to be Fuhrer. Well, in, in a space like that, there is the one Fuhrer who can keep the thing together in the same way as Cottrell and Co. did through their Facebook page. At the same time, it allows new people to find the organisation, and when they find the organisation, it's not like just receiving a dusty old pamphlet like you used to back in the day. You're immediately induced to engage and interact with some other fascists, and you can see when you look at those sites, you can see how they, they caterize each other. When a new person comes along, they start to engage in debate, discussions, they learn the jargon and the ideas and the history and and, and so on. Um, so, in some ways, I think it plays the role that a traditional organisation would play for them if they were able to build one in the real world. Now, for fascism to play the historical role that it plays, they need eventually to have a real-world organisation. But until they're in a state where they can do that, I think the online space suits them very nicely. And as to another point about monitoring them, well, that, I think, is the kind of paradox. I mean, the more they're defeated on the street and the more they fragment and, you know, go online, then the harder it is to keep track of them. That doesn't mean, though, that defeating them on the street is not a good thing to do. It's more simply that, you know, with modern technology, it's possible for one fascist with a gun to, to do an awful lot of damage, and it's very, very difficult to prevent one person with with a gun. So I'm not sure that there's particularly any way around that, except that the more isolated they are, the more likely they are to become demoralised and to drop up, drop out and to just give the game away. One final question, Jeff. As you said, you know, you go online, you read the reaction to this awful event and, and find people celebrating it. It's not a... Uh, it's a fairly, be quite a demoralising experience, and I found also that some of those most enthusiastic expressions were coming from people on Facebook who otherwise expressed, uh, you know, great love for their local cafe and uh, cats, and uh, you know, weren't otherwise displaying obvious symbols or uh, political commitments to a, you know, some kind of redemptive uh, fascist violence. But nonetheless, we're thrilled. And just recently we've had in Victoria, there's been reportage this week of someone flying a, a Nazi flag on their property and protesting that this was simply a display of their German... Heritage. Yeah, exactly. So I guess what I'm asking is, on, on the one hand, you've got, well, you've got a proliferation of symbols and ideas that are being picked up fairly easily by people who are otherwise not necessarily deeply politically engaged. 
So it may be a um, fairly shallow form of appropriation, but nonetheless, uh, in, in undertaking this activity, people are demonstrating their, I guess, readiness. There's, there's a certain sense in which there's a segment of the population which is actually welcoming and responding positively to fascist propaganda, which would point to a kind of, I guess, a deeper underlying kind of issue that might need to be dealt with. Is there other, are there other lessons that we haven't, that you think can be drawn from the experience and your experience in writing this book that we haven't uh, covered, uh, just to end? Oh, I mean, look, I, I think the points that you raised there are good ones. There's a, a, a quote from the um, American social critic Dwight MacDonald that I always really like about how in politics the mask becomes the face. And you can see that with the online sphere that you stumble into, if you're some 16-year-old or whatever, and you stumble into these forums, you can see how, at first, it's, you know, it's, it's a good way to shock your teachers, it's a good way to own the libs by, you know, making some jokes about gas chambers and whatever, and it doesn't necessarily have very much to do with the rest of your life. There's a disinhibition that comes with being in a secret, um, uh, anonymous environment. But, you know, the more you do these things, the more they become important to you. And, again, not everyone who, you know, posts Pepe um, memes or, you know, hangs around the corridors or whatever becomes fascist cater. But, of course, these forums are attracting very large numbers of, of people. I mean, that was one of the things that really jumped out at me when I was researching the book many people were, you know, accessing sites like the Daily Stormer or places like 8chan or, or whatever. And so you only need a very, very small number of people to contribute to, to mayhem. And that, I think, was part of the Christchurch perpetrators' stratagem. I mean, you were talking before about the manifesto. It wasn't intended as a document for everyone, but he was confident that if it began to circulate in these forums, it would find the people um, for whom it would inspire to go out and commit awful acts, and indeed it has. So I think this is going to be an ongoing challenge, ongoing challenge for us. I think these things will come in waves that they will, you know, build support online and they will t- try to take it into the real world. And when they're beaten back in the real world, they will retreat again online. So I think these are questions that we will have to keep returning to again and again. Indeed. Well, Jeff, thanks very much for joining us. If people want to find the book, it's called Fascists Among Us, Online Hate and the Christchurch Massacre, and is available in all good bookstores. Cheers, Guy. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for listening to our debut episode of uh, Yena Passaran. We'll be back same time next week. And coming up on 3CR, we have Global Intifada.
Man. 